0: Good morning, Capshaw. Please stand for the reading of God's Word and then worship with us. From Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, for they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish.
1: Good morning, church family. I hope that you've been encouraged this morning by, by, by singing about the faithfulness of God. I hope that during this time of unrest that you that you find comfort in realizing and singing about the faithfulness of God. My name is Brandon Bailey. I'm the student pastor here at Capshaw, and I want to thank you for joining us, whether you're here live and in person or whether you're streaming online. We want to thank you for taking a moment to worship with us This morning, I want you to also be encouraged by knowing that our church, or that your church staff, that it's your church uh, elder team, we have been consistently praying for our church family. If there's anything that we can pray for you and your family about, I ask that you go to capshaw.org forward slash connect card and fill out that online form and let us know of things that we can pray for you. And your family about this is one of the first few times that you've joined us. We would love to have a record of your attendance, so please fill that out as well. Once again, Capshaw.org forward slash connect card. We just want to connect with you. We want to pray for you, um, so please use that as an opportunity to let us know things that we can pray for you about this morning. Pastor John is continuing the, his series uh, "Handwritten by God," where we're, gonna, where we're going through the uh, Ten Commandments, and I promise you, you're going to uh, you're going to enjoy and be encouraged. This morning, Th- thank you once again for getting up. Hopefully, you didn't—you uh, weren't up too late last night with some fireworks. But uh, it's going to be a great morning. We're glad that you're here. Let's continue uh, worshiping through music worship.
0: Before the throne of. Rain high priest to
2: Thank you so much, Britt, Maggie, worship team. Go ahead and have a seat, uh, church family. Uh, Good morning. So good to see you and those of you who are uh, watching online and those of you who may uh, watch later in the week. Happy uh, Independence Day weekend. Hope you had a good time. And, uh, you know, with all the tension and unrest and uh, all the things going on still, we're incredibly blessed to be in the country that we're in and uh, praise God for that. Uh, uh, Don't forget, next week we have our... A special called members meeting so it'll be right after this service roughly eleven fifty or so um, we won't have people going to get their kids so we'll be able to uh, to commence uh, you know f- pretty much right away so a couple of items on the agenda some important stuff so I encourage you to come back uh, for that or at least hang around for that next week uh, as we meet together as members but uh, let's pray and we'll get into the word together Father in heaven, we're so grateful that the uh, completion of our salvation does not depend on our uh, our faithfulness, but on your faithfulness. It doesn't depend on our sort of white-knuckled efforts or uh, our uh, doing more, trying harder, but ultimately our, our final salvation rests secure because you are the one who will see to it that we are brought safely to you. You are the one who will preserve our faith. You are the one who will make Christ manifest in, in our life, and we praise you for that. Uh, we thank you for your word and its power. We thank you that uh, your grace is demonstrated, even that you would speak to us, that you would speak, and that we can listen, we can read and respond. And We know, Father, that that worship is not finished when we conclude our songs together, but uh, we can worship you and must worship you as we respond to your word together. Uh, Give us humility. Give us an eagerness to obey. Give us a a sense of uh, confidence and rest in Christ's finished work and help us to, uh, again, to consider the text responsibly. Father, perform a work by your spirit and through your word. For Christ's sake. Amen. Okay, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Exodus 20. This is, as we mentioned, week five of our 10-week series through the Ten Commandments. And if you are new with us, this is a little bit different what we're doing now. We, we tend to kind of work our way through a book of the Bible. We'll spend weeks, and in the case of John's gospel, it was a year and two or three months. But this is a special 10-week series on, on the Ten Commandments. And we are taking one commandment uh, per week. And again, this morning, we are on uh, the fifth commandment. In the spring of 2000, a man by the name of Bruce Wilkinson, a Christian ministry leader and sort of traveling evangelist, he uh, released a book called The Prayer of Jabez. And in this book, uh, Wilkinson taught that if Christians would just repeat a certain phrase, which came out of 1 Chronicles 4, Um, if they would repeat it sort of verbatim and they would add it to their regular devotion, their life of devotion, that they would experience God's incredible, richest blessing and that all their dreams uh, would come true, as it were. Now, uh, the book was actually pretty horrible in terms of its theological uh, grounding. Uh, In fact, it actually kind of contradicted what Jesus said, who warned against the heaping up of of empty words or, or repeating phrases um, but he went on to sell, you know, become this incredibly uh, uh, top-selling book. It reached that rarefied air of 10 million copies sold, uh, and it made of uh, Bruce Wilkinson a, a very rich man. Um, now, he, he left, he sold his house in Atlanta, moved to Swaziland, which is this little kingdom that's just kind of uh, northeast of, of South Africa, away on the, the southern tip of the continent of Africa. And he went there with this dream, this incredible dream, that he would, uh, he would put together a, a ministry that rescued children who had been orphaned by the AIDS virus. And it would be a bit of a tourist attraction. It would have a rodeo and a, a bed and breakfast and game drives and, and all these things that would attract people for the purpose of raising money to save orphans. Uh, well, sadly and, and somewhat ironically, um, his dream was never realized, but the whole thing ended up to be a, a failure, Sort of a, a bureaucratic nightmare, and um, he uh, just after a couple of years sold uh, everything he had there, moved back to the States, and kind of left a, a people uh, scratching their heads, thinking, What, what just happened here? Uh, well, Bruce Wilkinson had gained fame before that, and I think in a bit more of a noble way, as he traveled around college campuses and, and churches, and he had this, this illustration that he gave. That was called the three-chair principle. Maybe, maybe you've heard of it. But he would go to these universities, and he would get on the stage, and he would put three chairs. He would line them sort of you know, right next to each other. And the first chair represented a generation of God's people, those who knew God and those who trusted in God's coming Messiah, those who walked in the ways of the Lord and communed with God. The next chair represented a second generation, a generation of people who knew of God, but they didn't know God. They didn't walk with God. They were not, they were not trusting by faith in, in God's coming Messiah. Uh, they just knew of God. And then the third generation, the third chair represented a third generation of people who neither knew God nor of God. And the point of that illustration was to you know, really to demonstrate the importance of passing down generation to gener- generation, a legacy of faith. Well, this is really behind... The in some ways, the fifth commandment that we're, we're looking at this morning. Um, and in some ways, this is really what the fifth cam- commandment is all about. Passing down a legacy of faith, one generation to another, a task which is made possible, of course, by the prayerful efforts of parents, but also demands the teachability and the humility and the receptivity of our children. It demands that they actually honor those who are in authority over them. So, With that in mind, I'll explain that more as we we move along, but let's uh, read the text together. And kind of what we've been doing as we've been going through the Ten Commandments is we've each week we pick up where we lost off, so we we read the entire uh, section. So I'm going to read Exodus 20, verses 1 through 12. The Word of the Lord reads this way, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold guiltless who takes His name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And then the commandment we're looking at this morning. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So the first four commands, which you know we, we, we widely regarded to make up the first table, they really uh, describe sort of one's orientation toward God. And so they really... They really explain this sort of vertical dimension, how God's redeemed people relate to the God who saved them, the God who rescued them. The second uh, table, which made up of the six commands, um, that represents how God's redeemed people relate to one another, how they actually engage one another and live in community with one another. And I think it's interesting. In fact, it's fascinating to me that when God talks about how His redeemed people should relate to one another, He starts with how children relate to and respond to their parents. Because, it it is reasoned, if a person can't honor his father or mother, the ones who trained him or her nurtured, um, provided for, how will that person ever be able to show humility and deference to anyone else? The great 4th century uh, bishop of Africa, Augustine, asked rhetorically, if anyone fails to honor his parents, is there anyone he will spare? Now, of course, that begs a question, what in the world does it mean to honor one's father and mother? And we've what we've tried to do is look at these commands, both in the, the broader context of redemptive history, that is, the full story of God's plan to redeem and rescue and restore His creation, but also in the ancient Near Eastern context, because we need that in order to rightly understand what's going on here. The word honor is, it is the Hebrew word kavath, which uh, surprisingly is the same Hebrew word that appears in noun form to, talk, to describe God's glory. It means weight, the weight, the manifold weight of God's glorious perfections, his kavath. And so that word, again, it's used surprisingly the same word in reference to children honoring their parents. But here's what the command is getting to, and this is our first point this morning. To honor our father and mother is simply to give due weight to their God given position. This is what this is talking about in terms of what it means to honor. Now, of course, that still begs some questions like, what in the world does that actually mean, practically speaking? Well, uh, there, are th- there are three dimensions to this honoring that children are called to. They are, they're called to respect, obedience, and gratitude. And We'll talk just for a minute about each one of those. Sometimes after a person uh, loses a, to, a parent to death, they kind of revert to this rose-colored perspective of their parent, um, Their parent, you know, in their estimation, as they reflect, could do no wrong. They have this sort of idea of their parent as being perfect. Um, There was a Christian psychologist that we worked with as a church when I was in Southern California who was wonderful, very informed in the gospel and and theologically deep, but also had multiple degrees in psychology. And she called this uh, an unhealthy idealization of a parent. And, And she said sometimes people would look at their parents, particularly after they had died or whatever, and, they, and all they could see was perfection from their parents. Now, the flip side is probably more common, and that is we see that, you know, especially if, if a person has had a parent leave them or, or a parent uh, who was abusive or harshly critical or totally disengaged or, or maybe a parent, uh, their parents were divorced at an early age, in that case, they can't see really any good. They can't see the good in their parents. Well, the reality is uh, your parents were not perfect. Your parents uh, were flawed, imperfect people just like you and I are. And I say this as a father of four who is well acquainted with my own sinful shortcomings and imperfections. I and mean, I just realized at 40 years old that when I played basketball with my, my boys, um, I provoked them so badly and, and sinfully that they, they didn't want to talk to me for a week. Because I realize this is, this is provoking. This is not being a loving father. And I could, I could write a list, of a long list, perhaps a, a, a book of the dumb and hurtful things that I've said and done. The reality is we're not perfect as parents. Your parents are not perfect. They were not perfect if they've sort of passed on. But in His sovereignty, God has placed you if they're still alive, he's placed them over you. And of course, um, he has given us parents that he calls us to respect. I don't usually pay much attention to the magazines in the grocery store aisle, but I happen to notice uh, just the last couple of visits uh, a couple of interesting headlines that caught my eye. Uh, for example, I just saw a, a magazine that featured a 88 uh, year old or 90 year old who's supposedly pregnant. And so you, you look at those things. How does that actually? Could that be true? A $500 million divorce was what was one uh, one cover. Or I'm fascinated by this idea of a plant-based everything, you know, plant-based ribeyes, plant-based meat. Plant. So th- these are, you know, these are things that I've seen. But I but here's a recent cover, a question from a cover of a magazine to teenagers. Right in bold. It says, Do you really hate your parents? Like, who doesn't? How to deal with your detestables. Now, that's not, I don't know if uh, that was behind me, but that that wasn't actually the real magazine, but that was a real uh, question on the cover of a magazine. And I think it, you know, okay, it's a catchy title. It certainly, you know, grabs your attention, but I think it really illustrates in some way the the kind of disrespect for parents that has come to characterize um, our culture now. Um, Respect which was a very big thing in, in the ancient Near Eastern context where, where the, kind of the, one of the greatest sins you could commit against your parents was to bring shame to them in the city gates where people were gathered. Um, and so respect is a critical aspect of honoring father and mother. Now, it may not be easy at times, again, with imperfect parents, um, but God has commanded us to show respect in the way that we talk to them, the way that we talk about them, in the way that we respond to them, we're called to be respectful. Now, the next the next dimension of that honoring refers to obedience. To obey just means to do what they say when you're part of their household. We had a challenging situation uh, with one of our our. Kids a few years ago, and I had to sort of outline a what I call a memorandum of understanding, and uh, we both read it together and signed it. Said, okay, when you're under our household, then you have a biblical obligation to obey your parents. Now, when kids get older, when we get older, the concept of obey is is actually enfolded into this idea of respecting. Um, when we're adults, you know, living on our own. Um, you know, we're no longer called to obey our parents. We're still called to respect our parents, which means, of course, you know, inviting their counsel. It means, um, you know, honoring them and so on, but we don't obey them. There's something, there's something really profound about this idea of leaving and cleaving, which, of course, is in those early chapters of Genesis, which is a reference ultimately primarily about, you know, two people becoming one flesh and, and getting married. But the reality is, is still the same. If you leave your parents' household, then you're no longer uh, under an obligation to obey them. Um, But if you haven't left yet, if you still live at home, then you're still under the, the authority of your parents and commanded to obey them. Now, what about when your parents ask you to do something or instruct you to do something that's contrary to the Word of God? If your parents command you to do something against God's Word, then you, as someone belonging to God, someone who is part of, of God's covenant people, who's been purchased by God, then you must not obey your parents if it means disobeying the God who saved you. A scenario in a previous church where there was a young lady who, be, who started becoming part of the college-age ministry and And God brought her to to saving faith in Christ, and this this radical, miraculous uh, story of salvation, which every story of salvation is. But this was was interesting because the way God rescued her from a family that was very much against the Christian faith. And when she put her faith in Christ, her parents said to her, "You cannot go be part of a Christian church. You cannot go worship with other believers. You cannot be part of this. You cannot serve Jesus or whatever." And so she had a, a very difficult dilemma. What do I do in this situation? She came to me. She said, I want to, I want to be honoring to my parents, but my parents are saying, you cannot not have anything to do with the Christian faith. And she was just so overwhelmed, of course, with gratitude that God had saved her. And so I said, well, you need to be part of a believing community. You need to be part of a church. This is how God keeps His own. You, you, this is how God nurtures and develops as part of a body, and so you need to be part And by God's grace, there was a young couple in the church that were in their mid-twenties. They'd been married nine or ten months. And they said, hey, you can come. We have an extra room. You can come live with us. And she did. She was part of the church. And God just grew her in terms of her knowledge of God and and the grace of God. It was really incredible. So honoring our parents involves respect. It involves obedience, you know, as long as their instructions are not contrary to the Word of God. And then finally, uh, the, the other dimension of this is it involves gratitude. When we're kids, you know, we don't recognize, I know I certainly didn't when I was a kid, all the sacrifices that our parents make sacrifices in time, sacrifices in money, sacrifices in dreams at times, sacrifices in emotions, and, and the list goes on. Parents make these sacrifices, and one way that we honor our parents is by realizing the sacrifices that are made and responding with gratitude. Now, remember, I pointed out, I don't know, the first couple of weeks that God makes it clear from the very introduction of these 10 words, these 10 commandments, that this is not about being a good person in order to earn God's favor or earn a, a certain standing with God. This is about how people who have been rescued, remember the commandments are given to an already rescued people. This is how people who have been rescued, redeemed, who have been saved and delivered actually respond to the one who delivered them. And those who know that they've been rescued, those who know that, that God has saved them despite no merit of their own, actually respond with gratitude. This is a natural overflow of the redeemed heart. Rescued people are grateful. The Baptist theologian and scholar Al Mohler writes, Thanksgiving is a deeply theological act, rightly understood. As a matter of fact, thankfulness is a theology in microcosm a key to understanding what we really believe about God, ourselves, and the world we experience. And I think it's a fair moment to ask the question, as I've had to ask myself, are you the type of person who always finds something to complain about? Are you the type of person who always finds something wrong with the situation? Are you the type of person who's known for being sort of a a malcontent, a complainer, a murmurer, a whiner? Or are you known for your gratitude? Are you known for a person who is able to see God's grace in every situation? As you live with your parents, as you engage your parents, what does your level of thankfulness reveal about your understanding of God and His salvation? We could even say, what does it reveal about your own spiritual vitality? One way we honor our parents is by our gratitude. So there's the command to honor your father and mother. And that word honor there, the Hebrew word kaved, which is it refers to the weight. It's giving due weight to our parents, which uh, the dimensions of that are respect, obedience, and gratitude. It also has to be pointed out here that, again, as we consider this in its historical context, who our fathers and mothers are. If you were to ask an ancient Hebrew uh an ancient Israelite, when the ten words were delivered, who is your father? They would have at least five people who would come to mind immediately. First person would, of course, be their immediate father, the one who trained and developed and raised them. Then they would mention Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then they would mention Yahweh, who is said in the Old Testament, this, this covenant-keeping God who's called the father of Israel. So these would be the first things on, on the lips of the ancient, uh, the ancient Israelites. For the children of Israel, they talked about generational fathers. So what this means is behind this command to honor father and mother is actually a command to honor elders or, we might say, to honor those in authority over us. Again, for God's glory and the flourishing of society. Nearly 30 years ago, Michael Horton, biblical scholar and professor, wrote this. The fifth commandment is, therefore, rich in wisdom for every sphere of our lives. If we do not have clear lines of authority to which we submit, there will be anarchy. And if there's anarchy, tyranny is close behind. At the same time, he says, authority must be tempered by the duty of the rulers to have to, rulers have to serve and defend. Now, it's pretty remarkable how applicable that particular explanation is today. That was 30 years ago. How much that relates to today. The need for us as people under authority to show and to honor authority, while at the same time the need for those who are in authority to serve, defend, and to deal justly with people. Here's the second point I want to make this morning. The fifth commandment is intended to be applied broadly. It is a call to respect all who are in authority over us. Now, yes, this is a command to honor our father and mother, our our parents. But it goes deeper than that. It is a call for God's covenant people to humbly submit to the authority that God has placed over us. In fact, we might say, and, and many others have pointed this out before me and better than I will, but honoring your father and mother stands for our respect for authority in general. We should be prepared to and willing... Uh, to actually honor those who are in authority over us, uh, those who are in authority in our homes, in our government, in our schools, in our workplace. We're called as those kingdom citizens, those covenant people of God, to honor those who are in authority. Now, the stakes are pretty high. Look at verse 12. Uh, We read this, Honor your father and mother, and then there's this statement, that your days may be long in the land, that the Lord your God is giving you. Now, certainly, there is an aspect of this, and can't go too deep into this, where there is a blessing for those who respond in obedience. But this is not a promise. It's not a guarantee that if you are a good little boy or girl, you're going to live to be 80 or 90 or whatever it is. Okay? This is not a guarantee of a long life. We all know people, we can all bring people to mind who died what we would call prematurely or too soon as a young person, um, you know, and, and they were walking with the Lord. So it's not a guarantee. What it is more than that, really, is a statement of reality. Sons and daughters who honored their father and mother, who, re, who respected them and obeyed them and were grateful for their, their uh, work and tutelage in their lives, they then were more likely to live lives of wisdom. They were more likely to avoid the consequences of foolish decisions and rebellion. You read the proverb, the proverbs say, the way of the transgressor is hard, which is saying if you choose to ignore God's blueprint, you can expect to bring upon yourself all kinds of consequences. I've been spending a lot of times a lot of time in the proverbs lately, um, pleading with God for wisdom, wisdom on how to lead this church as, as one of the elders, wisdom on how to to lead in light of everything that's going on in our country and our world, the pandemic and, and racial division and Uh, injustice, inequality, disrespect for authority, all kinds of things. I've been pleading with God to give me wisdom. And so I've been spending time in the Proverbs. And what I've noticed is, you know, even sort of afresh, is how often that the way of the wise is presented as the way of a long life, whereas the way of the wicked is the one whose life will be cut off. Let me give you a couple of examples. Solomon says to his son in Proverbs 4, hear my son, And accept my words that the years of your life may be many. Again, this is not a guarantee that if you live a good life, you're going to live to be 100 years old. Um, But it is a statement of reality. Those who are obedient, those who live wisely, typically enjoy longer lives. Uh, Again, in chapter 10, the fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. Generally speaking, those who are wise, which is made evident in part by the way they respond to their parents' authority and authority, authority in general, they live longer, fuller lives. On the flip side, children who dishonor their parents, especially going back to this context, they dishonor their parents, they reveal their foolishness, their lives would be cut short. Sometimes we might say naturally, but sometimes because of The penalty of their rebellion, which was, in fact, the death penalty. God took so seriously the way that the children honored their parents that those who dishonored their parents were subjected to the most serious penalty. Deuteronomy 21, verses 18 through 20. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, he will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him, bring him out to the elders of his, ga- of his city at the gate of the place where he lives, and they shall say to the elders of the city, your, this our son is stubborn and rebellious, he will not obey our voice, he is a glutton and a drunkard, then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear." I don't know how you receive that, but that's a pretty harrowing thought, isn't it? Now, of course, we talked last week about how Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament ceremonial law and, and the civil law and the punishments and the sacrifices therein. And so, so we, don't, we don't stone people because of their disrespect or their rebellion, um, or I wouldn't be standing here today, I promise you, because I've, I was disrespectful and I dishonored my parents at times and, and I needed to be corrected. So it's that's not the way that it works, but but let's not go so far as to say, well, God is different now and, and, and God's not the same. God hasn't changed. God is unchangeable, His character immutable, so He hasn't changed. However, as part of this new covenant that we're living under, the so-called last days, the days between the, the advent of Jesus and the return of Jesus, of course, God deals with His people differently in that epoch or, or in that... That era, but it does show us just how seriously God regards those who would dishonor their parents. So, why is this important? So important? Well, for a number of reasons, and we're going to continue to talk throughout the series about why we obey God and why it's so important. But it's important, but one reason is in the case of this specific command, as I mentioned earlier, our children's obedience is for the sake of handing down the faith deposit generation after generation after generation for the benefit, not just for their benefit, but for the benefit of the surrounding nations so that God's name and fame would be announced to the surrounding nations. How would the Egyptians, how would the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites and all these other nations, how would they ever learn about or be exposed to the true God, the one true living God who is the rescuer of God's people? Well, they would find out through a child of Israel. Well, how would the child of Israel find out about this rescuing God? Through, by his mom and dad. Well, how would his mom and dad find out about this one true rescuing God? Through their mom and dad, through that kid's grandparents. And so a legacy of faith was passed down generation to generation. And I mentioned last week... We're going to talk next week about the missional nature of the Ten Commandments, which is a, which is a beautiful and profound reality. Um, But one of the again, the reason it's so important is because because as children then obey and they come under their father and mother's authority and so on, and they and they listen to their parents, they then pass down that faith deposit to the next generation and so on and so forth, so that the surrounding nations then are exposed to the true and living God. Children who do not honor their parents, whom they can see, have little interest in honoring a heavenly Father whom they cannot see. They become like the person who is in the third chair that I mentioned in Bruce Wilkinson's illustration. They no longer know God, nor walk with God. And a generation is lost, generation after generation, and the Creator God is not only not enjoyed nor glorified, but neither are His fame and name and glory spread to the distant parts of the earth. We read this tragic statement in the Old Testament, which pops up every once in a while. His heart was not fully devoted to the Lord as His Father's had been. And yeah, I mean, that's a tragic thing. We're supposed to feel the weight of this, not just for the sake of the person who wandered away from the faith, but also for the sake of all of those now who would not be exposed to, who would not hear about this God of mercy and grace. A generation would now be lost and the way of salvation would not be communicated. So it's a great responsibility for parents, how we live as parents how we speak as parents will have tremendous impact on our children in ways we can't even imagine at this point. Ways we don't even know. And for children, particularly of Christian parents, this is a grave warning from God. Don't turn away from your parents' teaching. Don't stray from the faith of your parents. Don't reject the God of your parents and your grandparents, because if you do, you may very well destroy your life. When we consider this command and the punishment and the blessing associated with it, we have to do so along with us being New Covenant people, along with the New Testament teaching about God, and so maybe maybe you're thinking, well, this just sounds like a God who is, who is vindictive and a God who is who is overly concerned, a God who has all these incredible, horrible punishments. Well, we have to consider this passage along, again, with the New Testament teaching on God. And I think especially for this exercise, the parable, the parable of the prodigal son. In that parable, the youngest son of the family essentially curses his father, demands his inheritance, and leaves home in a pretty offensive way. And that son actually becomes, get this, that son becomes the very example of the son that we read about in Deuteronomy 21 the one who was a drunkard, the one who was a glutton, the one who was dishonoring his family. He spurns his father, which we don't don't really understand in this day and age just how significant that was, demands his inheritance, goes out, spends it lavishly on women and and wine and pleasure, but then he runs out. He runs out of money, and he decides, I'm going to go home. I need to return home. And the father who represents God here in this parable, he continues to love his son. He continues to long for his son's return. And when his son does return home, what does the father do? Does he bring out a list and say, okay, if you meet these requirements, you're... what"? No, he runs out to meet him. He kisses him on the cheek. And his kiss was not the, the result of the son's demonstrated repentance Many have argued, I think it's a beautiful case, the kiss was the cause of the repentance. He runs out and he meets his son and he welcomes him back into his arms and he throws a feast for his once erring son. The father's forgiveness is not even conditioned upon the son's demonstrated repentance. It is, as I mentioned, the cause of it. Longtime pastor and biblical scholar Sinclair Ferguson writes, as he, the son, approached home, his once despised father breaks all social conventions. So good. The boy should have been received with a shaming ceremony. Instead, he runs to greet him. He will not have his son home only on the condition that he does penance in order to work his way back into his father's grace. He does not need to repent enough to be accepted. Now, this gives us a picture of what our Heavenly Father is like. Our Heavenly Father is a Father who loves to forgive, who delights in showing mercy. Our Heavenly Father is a a Father who loves to welcome home the wayward and the rebellious and the outcast. He is a Father who is patient and long-suffering and gentle and merciful. This gives us an idea of this sort of father we're talking about. There's a great moment in the Sermon on the Mount where it seems like Jesus is, is adding a little humor, and I don't know if that's the case or not, but now some people have this idea of Jesus that he was this sort of stoic and he always had a frown on his face or whatever. But Jesus is, in the, is toward the end of this beautiful, the, the greatest sermon ever preached, and then he says, hey, how many of you, if you have children, how many of you, if, if your child comes to you and asks for a fish, would you give him a snake? I don't know if anybody actually laughed at that. I know some people were angry about it. But he says, now, if your child comes to you and wants a fish, would you give him a snake? And what he says there by this this lesser to greater argument, if we who are sinful, sin-cursed, broken earthly fathers know how to give good things to our children, how much more our heavenly Father, who is perfect in every way, who is glorious in His holiness, in whom there is no darkness, how much more... Will he give good things to his children? Now we've seen throughout this series these commands, they leave us guilty. They leave us guilty. Who hasn't been ungrateful to your parents? Who hasn't been disrespectful to their parents? And then going back further to the first command, who hasn't loved other things more than they love God? And the, set, the next commandment, who hasn't worshipped God in a way that was for our own benefit, for our own emotional whatever. Own human? We, these commands leave us guilty. As I've mentioned multiple times, as the mirror, it, we hold it up to us, the law up to us, and it reflects our imperfections in a way that is increasingly clear. So we stand guilty before God. The, command, the commandments leave us that way. And the one we're looking at again today is no exception. But they also reveal to us a God who is a rescuer. They also reveal to us a God who is faithful and merciful toward His covenant people. And we can't forget the context of these commands. Remember, the, the people of Israel have been enslaved to the Egyptians for... 400 plus years, and, and if you know anything about ancient Egypt, you know it was a place that was polytheistic. It was a place where magic and sorcery ruled, and, the, and the, the Israelites have amalgamated some of those cultural norms into their own customs, and so they brought these things into their families. They are enslaved. They are being worked uh, mercilessly. As a general rule, Egyptians hated non-Egyptians, especially Hebrews, because Hebrews were monotheistic, And so they treated them with contempt. Exodus 1 tells us the Egyptians worked the people of Israel without mercy. They made their lives bitter, forcing them to mix mortar and make bricks and do all the work in the fields. They were ruthless in all their demands. But this is where there's so much hope, even in the Ten Commandments. There's so much grace in the Ten Commandments. By His power and mercy, God remembered His covenant with Abraham, and I love that that language. He remembered His covenant. He rescued the Israelites from their slavery, and in doing so, He gave them the Ten Commandments, which were the way that they would relate to God and to neighbor. It was the way of human flourishing, the way to create a society, a people where justice prevailed and mercy was on display, and people loved one another and cared for one another, how people related to God and neighbor. The commandments are given again to a specific people in the context of a relationship. I am the Lord your God, he says, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. But maybe you're thinking, you know, I don't know, I just don't, I, I, I can't submit to, to authority. I have my own way of thinking and my own way of doing things, and, and, and I, I just can't come under people's authority. I can't come under the authority of people that I don't respect, I can't come under the authority of people that I don't trust. You know, I just kind of do things my own way. Well, it's not, of course, surprising to think that. Maybe you think, I just can't submit. And this is really what this is all about, right? This, this commandment is calling for submission to those who are in authority for the benefit of a watching world. Well, if you're saying that, I can't submit, there's actually good news for you this morning as we look to the perfect son. Jesus Christ has demonstrated the ultimate submission for you and so that you can submit. Now, here's the final point I want to make, and it'll take a little explanation. Jesus' obedience to His parents provides both the example and the power for our obedience. Jesus' obedience to His parents provides both the example and the power for our obedience. In Luke's gospel, we're told about this time where Jesus, as a 12-year-old, gets lost. And, uh, you know, he's, his parents are traveling. Jesus is with them. There's probably forty or five people together in this big sort of clan of people. Uh, and, and Jesus gets lost. He's gone. And, and actually, now, it's one thing, I guess, if you lose a two-year-old, right? you a three-year-old. You, you stop everything. You, you go. For, but Jesus is 12 years old, roughly. He gets lost. And for three days, his parents don't know where he is. They don't know where he's gone. And they find him three days later, and Jesus says, Oh, no, I mean, don't you realize I was in my father's house? And they say, No, Jesus, you, you, you live with us in Nazareth. Your father's house is here at Nazareth. That's not your father's house. And we see through this account in Luke that Jesus actually is what theologians call the messianic consciousness. Jesus actually comes to realize he is a member of the triune God. Jesus becomes aware of who he is at that young age, and yet, here's I think the most fascinating part of that passage, what we see at the very end of it in verse 51, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Jesus knows who he is. He is aware of that he is, he is a member of the triune Godhead, and yet he comes under, he willingly comes under the authority of his earthly parents. Now, maybe you think, well, my, you know, my parents are just too awkward. I've heard, I wish I had a dollar for every time I've heard that. My parents are just too awkward. We go to the grocery store with one of my kids. We see somebody else from church. They say, oh, dad, that's so awkward. I'm like, how is that awkward? They, we, they, we know these people. But maybe you're thinking, I just can't submit to my parents. They're just too awkward. It's just too difficult. Jesus, knowing that he was God, came under the authority, willingly submitted himself to his earthly parents. Now, the the idea of submission, there's another image of submission that's actually more striking and and, and more powerful. And that happened a little over 20 years after that, that, when he got lost. And this is when Jesus was arrested, beaten, betrayed, and voluntarily laid down his life for a rebellious people. This is the ultimate act of submission. Jesus says to the Father, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus gave up his life so that sinful people who have failed to honor their parents, who have failed to love God supremely, who have failed to to worship God the right way, could be justified before God. Through His life and death, we are given life and spared eternal death. By trusting in Him for the forgiveness of sins, we are cleansed of every guilt, stain, and offense against God. And not only that, not only are we cleansed every time we have been disrespectful, every time we have dishonored, every time we have been disobedient with our thoughts, our motives, our actions, not only are we cleansed, but we're also given by his Spirit the indwelling presence of the risen Christ. So if you put your faith in Christ this morning, if you come to the end of your own efforts to save yourself, your own rebellion, you put your faith in Christ, you actually indwell by the risen Christ, who lives within you. And and there's only one thing that's said to possess the power to enable us to actually obey God out of love the way He desires, and that is Christ Himself, who is in us, who is revealed to us in the gospel, which is the good news of God's love for us, demonstrated in the advent, the obedience, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, and coming return of Christ, to the degree that Jesus Christ Himself is manifest in us, We will be able to, through prayer, keep the law of Christ, which includes honoring father and mother and honoring authority. Christ is manifested in us as we regularly take in and apply the gospel. So, know this this morning as we conclude. God has given us a command that we honor our parents, and there are great stakes involved that we honor our parents, and in fact, that we honor those who have been placed in authority over us. But this command comes from a God who not only makes demands, but He provides what He demands. Here's a God who said, you must do these things, but I'm going to provide a way for you to be forgiven for the times that you have failed and, in fact, totally cleansed before me Presented to me as if you've kept all the commands. And not only that, I'm giving you my Son who by the Spirit will indwell in you and empower you and enable you, not just as your example, but as the one who will equip you for every good work. And it's all by grace. It's all by God's grace. It's not by our, again, our hard work, our doubling down, our you know, looking within, finding that inner whatever. It's not because of any of that stuff. It's because of the grace of God who saves us, who keeps us, and allows us to walk into His presence, as we're going to sing in just a moment, as those who have been purchased and purified. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask this morning, we ask that you would give us the grace to obey you. We ask that you would help us, even this morning, to rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ, who was obedient on our behalf, who died the death we deserve, who has has now ascended to your right hand, Father, and is there interceding for his very own. And we know the scriptures tell us is actually living within us even now. And we know this is all a part of and because of your grace which has brought this sinner home and your grace which will keep us to the end. We praise you, the living God, the rescuer of your people, the loving and merciful King. Have mercy on us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen.
0: Cap, shall please stand and worship with us. sinner home, from death to life forever, and sings this song of righteousness.
3: church families. Good to see you this morning. Uh, this must be the uh, fireworks crowd we got here. I don't see any uh, burnt hair, or missing eyebrows out there, so y'all must have been safe out there last night. Good. Um, as we enter into a time of uh, worship through giving, I want to remind you that uh, here at CAPTCHA, there's three different ways you can do that. Uh, we've got, uh, if you go to CAPTCHA.org um, top right, there's a little button you click that says give. You can do it that way. You can mail your, um,
4: uh,
3: your ties in here at the when you exit, there's some boxes there you can place your your offering in. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, dearly Father Lord. We just uh, we thank you, Lord. We thank you that uh, you came and you lived a life we couldn't live. You died a death for our sins, my sins, and Lord, you, not only that, but you 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 gave us your righteousness and. You sent us the Holy Spirit. You give us the Holy Spirit. And Lord, how do, how do we give in return of that? I mean, the answer that is there's nothing we can give bigger than that. And so, Lord, we give in return just out of a, out of a sense of joy, of grace, and faithfulness. And Lord, I pray that you would just uh, give us wisdom to take these offerings and to use them to further your name further the gospel throughout the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I get to the benediction, I, I just have one, two things I wanted to uh, touch on. One is, uh, as sure, I'm sure that you're all aware that the, the numbers of cases in our area have kind of gone up, so I would just ask, as you're exiting today, just be gracious to those around you. Um, if you have a mask, we don't require a mask, but if you have one, we ask that you'd wear it. If uh, and just maintain social distancing as we leave out. We're not asking that you don't visit, just maybe a little uh, you know, fist bump or elbow or whatever and just no shaking of hands. Uh, the second thing is if something that we've mentioned here, there's something that the, the Word of God has moved in you and you have a question. If you're here, I'll be down here. I've got a mask in my pocket. I'll be happy to talk to you. Uh, if you're at online, uh, not to forget, I know we have many people that are watching online our church family that uh, is still choosing to do so. Uh, uh, we look forward to being back with you. Uh, but if you have a question, you can contact us by uh, emailing us at uh, elders at And we'd be happy to get back with you about that. Um, our benediction. Now, let me get to that. Our benediction today is from Galatians 2.20. The word of the Lord Is this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Capshaw family, you are dismissed.